Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sicker Than Most. I'm your host, Steve, and today I got a good friend on the show here, my boy Nate, big nasty Nate, you know? He's here to uh, uh, share his absolutely fucked story. It's so fucked. I've heard bits and pieces, and from what I've heard, it's it's intense, you know? Um, and then we're going to hear about his incredible journey into recovery and... Um, how he continues to stay sober today, you know? It's going to be a good episode. I already got a good feeling about it. Um, so, yeah, man, without further ado, Nate, what it do? First of all, Steve, thanks for having me on the show, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, this was a must. This was a must. Yeah. So I guess, man, uh, you know, you, you asked me to share my story, so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, tell them, like, how truly bad it can get. All right, man. You know, uh, don't hold back. So... Let's see, man. Um, I was born in North Carolina, right? So, and my parents adopted me. Um, so from a very young age, man, I can always remember feeling out of place, not part of, uh, never really fit in. Um, how, and, how old were you when you got adopted? Uh, right when I was born, actually, my parents got a letter from uh, the adoption agency that there was a baby available. And that baby happened to be me. Nice. Um, so, and they, my parents were looking for for quite some time they're trying to have kids and just couldn't man and uh so when they got that letter it, it they thought it was a blessing right and little did they know what my <laughs> where where i was going to take them right yeah. so <laughs> did um have you ever um gotten in touch with your biological parents i have yeah I've, I've actually gone back to north carolina a few times and met my biological mom and my biological dad um, so nice nice so then you know how did that start did you grow up in north carolina no or so I was uh, I was born in North Carolina. I was born uh, let's see three months premature. My my birth mom was addicted to crack and alcohol. Um, so I was born three months premature. Had to spend three months in the NICU um, before my is parents. that is that like the the bubble they the yep. little bubble that they okay yep so the, the incubator incubator yeah yeah um, so I spent three months there man and my parents uh, right when my parents got the letter they flew to North Carolina they were there. Um, the day I was born, I believe, and then they stuck around in North Carolina. My mom and dad um, both worked. They owned a company, so um, they both worked. So they took turns uh, flying to and from North Carolina from Fresno. Wow. So one of them was there uh, pretty much all the time. Wow. Until yeah. you were finally let out of the, the bubble, and then they were able to fly you yep. home? Or? Yep. So <clears throat> I got out of the NICU, and they flew me home uh, shortly after that, and so I was born in North Carolina and about three months old. I have lived in Fresno since I was three months old till till now. Till present time. Yep, till nice. Present. Well, you haven't only lived in. No, in I, I I moved around a little bit, man. I uh, so uh, on top of being adopted, right when I was uh, in like third or fourth grade, um, I couldn't read up until the time I was in third or fourth grade, and I went to a a uh, specialist, and they told me that I had two different kinds of dyslexia. So on top of not feeling. Uh, not fitting in or anything that really p played a big role in, in not fitting in, man, not being a part of, not being uh, able to read, being made fun of by other kids at school um, mm -hmm. and things like that, you know. So uh, in third or fourth grade, I moved to Pismo to go to Linda Mood Bell, which is a school specifically. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. They do the whole like, oh, what is it called? Where you you speak and it, it they like teach you how to re-speak re almost. Yeah, right? it's... Yeah, well, kind of, so the problem was never that, like, I was stupid or I didn't know the meaning of words or anything like that, right? Um, it was just, I couldn't, words would flip around a lot, you know, like the letters of the words, a B would look like a D and A would, you know, it would, they would move around a lot. So it was hard for me to, you know, sit down and, and read a book, man. I couldn't really, really do it. And what I did at Lenny Bell is I spent about a year and a half there, um, just six hours a day, um, learning how to read man that's what the teachers were trained in that's what all of them did so that's that's what i did down in well the schools in san luis obispo i lived in pismo okay just yeah. commuted back mm -hmm. and forth commuted, okay yeah. so then uh at what point did um did you know drinking and drugs enter the picture because obviously yeah. you're it, what it sounds like is you're just getting set up to be the perfect drug addict. Yeah, man. I mean, a lot. I mean, I can remember when I was a kid, right? Like, all this stuff's going around. My mom and dad both worked all the time. I was really raised by babysitters. Um, had very little friend group, right? Uh, so I, I grew up alone a lot of the time. And um, 
around the age of 13, my my dad, uh, mom and dad, when this was like 2007 when the economy changed, so my mom and dad lost the business, decided to get a divorce, and I really didn't have um, anybody watching over me or anything like that. They were both busy all the time. So around the age of 13 is when I, I tried weed for the first time. Okay. Um, smoked, smoked a little herb. Mm-hmm. Anything crazy? Mm-hmm. Or was it kind of just like, you know, uh, this isn't really my thing? No, I, I so... And what I was going to say, man, is from the time I was a kid, like I can remember spinning around in circles or eating a ton of candy or playing sports like crazy um, just to change the way I feel. When you mean you know? spinning around in circles, like literally yeah, making yourself dizzy. 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 Yeah, making myself dizzy. Just quick, to, quick little head change. Yeah, quick little head change, man. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and then, you know, when I turned 13, I, I smoked weed for the first time and that kind of changed everything, man. From the first day I smoked weed to the time I was 18 and went to my first treatment center, I was high on something. Every single day. Uh, every single day. Yeah. Every single day. Okay. Okay. So I, I started smoking weed when I was 13. Shortly after that, like 13, 13 and a half, I started drinking. Uh, 15 and 16, I, sh- I started drinking really heavily and like taking Xanax and, and uh, prescription painkillers. And then by the time I was uh, almost 18, like 17 and a half, 18, I was um, smoking meth and shooting heroin. Mm. And how did, how did the progression of that, um, like, how did that look like when, when you go from just like smoking weed every day Mm -hmm. to drinking and then the pills, because, you know, everyone kind of has their own introduction into it, but like, what, what did you feel like was like a big, like motivator for you to like continue to continue to like basically graduate to the next thing into the next thing into the next thing? Cause people think it's like, you know. Uh, a lot of normies or people who are uneducated about the disease concept, they just think that you um, wake up one day and you're like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try some heroin. Yeah. It's gonna be a good day. That so, doesn't usually happen like that. No, no, not at all. Um, so I was 13. I smoked weed and, and I had found what worked for me, man. Something clicked and that made me fit in. That made me feel part of. That made me feel um, like I belong, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, man, it was um, something totally different than that instantly changed the way I felt, you know, and it lasted a little bit longer. So I didn't have to but keep you know, on spinning around in circles. Yeah, keep on spinning around in circles, <laughs> man. You know, I, that didn't continue for long. I want to point out I, I wasn't the weird kid that sat in the corner and just spun around in circles all day. But really, you know, yeah, I mean, shockingly enough. No, hmm. I wasn't that kid. <laughs> so, but, uh, so then you, uh, you know, go to smoking weed. Mm-hmm. Why didn't um, obviously like. You know, addicts know why you didn't stop. But like for the normies, like why didn't you just stop at weed? Right. So like I said before, right, my mom was an addict and an alcoholic, right? I believe I was born with the disease of addiction. Biological mom. Biological mom. Yep. My, my, both my adoptive parents are uh, not alcoholic or addicts. So um, my biological mom and my birth father, uh, both alcoholics, both addicts. And I believe I was born uh, with the disease of addiction. Right. So when I when I tried weed for that first time, something clicked in my head, man, something my brain um, found what it was looking for, you know, and it just naturally progressed from there. If I can get this high on weed, I wonder how high I can get in the feelings I can get if I take some Xanax, man, or if I drink more alcohol or if I pop some painkillers, man. And I remember that first time I popped painkillers. Um, that was it, dude. That was what I was really looking for. I thought I'd found it with weed. But when, when I felt that high from those painkillers, man, that was. Um, everything that I had ever been looking for, you know. And how did that start for you? Was it like, uh, did you have a surgery, or was it just a, a homeboy was like, hey, here, here's. Yeah, I didn't have a surgery or anything. Um, I, I was partying a lot, going to parties, and getting drunk. And then uh, a guy at one of the parties was like, hey man, you want to buy some Norco? And I was like, never sure. had Norco before, but why not? You know. Yeah. And I, I remember the first time I ever took Norco. Um, I was at a party, I was drunk, and this guy was like, you want to buy some Norco? You should probably take four of them. And I was like, okay. And I bought four Norcos and I took them. And the rest of the party, man, I was um, hunched over like one of those plastic bins just puking. And everybody was walking by like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm, I'm fucking fine. Don't worry about me, man. Like <laughs> The normal person would see that like that kid's fucking dying, you know? Yeah. But in my head, I was thinking like, this is amazing. Mm. I'm having the time of my life, man. While hunched over, not doing anything in the party, just hunched over a plastic bin puking into it, you know? Mm. And, and other people would look at that and be like, you know, dude's like, he's, he's going to die or yeah. like something seriously wrong with him. But my sick thinking, man, is like, this is, I'm having the time of my life. I found what I want to do for the rest of my life. 
you know. So it was that first that that first time, even though you were really yeah. drunk too, you just yeah. you, you felt that that uh, you know that, <clears throat> for lack of a better word, that warmness mm-hmm. finding opiates. Yeah. So then, was it like the next day? Yeah, uh, it wasn't the next day. So I I, I took the oh and. I heard somebody uh, describe the high of opiates one time and it still rings true to me to this day. Like that feeling, you know, it, it's, it's like sitting on a nice beach, listening to the waves and feeling the warmth of a sunrise come up and hit you, man. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. And, uh, that was the feeling I felt like I was warm. I was there. It was like a, a big cozy blanket you threw over yourself, man. And that's what I had found. So after that first time I did them, it wasn't the next day, but my mind was always thinking about the next high, the next time I could get opiates. And it took me a little bit of time to find the connect, right? Um, or even just a reliable like source, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because think about me, I'm, I'm a 14-year-old kid, 15-year-old kid, um, asking grown adults if I can buy their prescription painkillers. You know, Most so of the time, they're going to be like, hey, dude, fuck yeah, you. Yeah, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was persistent, and I did find that that individual that would continue to sell me yeah. Um, yeah. sell me Norcos, man. And it, it progressed from Norcos to um, Roxy's. I remember the first time I took a Roxy. I was sitting on a couch at a buddy's house uh, watching Reno 911. We all popped a Roxy. <laughs> we all popped a Roxy. What a great man. show to watch. It was, it, it was you know, it was a good experience. Um, not condoning, you know, <laughs> kids don't take Roxy's if you're out there, especially not watching Reno 911. But. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not watch Reno 911. But, uh, so we all took the Roxy's man and we're all sitting there like, man, this is bullshit. Like we can't feel anything. You know, we all woke up three hours later with Reno 911 on a loop because it was mm. a movie. Right. And, yeah. And even that time I was like, okay, that was pretty cool. I'd like to feel it though. So I continued to seek that out. Right. You took the uh, pill. You just got so high you fell asleep. Yeah, or? I just got so high, nodded out for like three hours, and then oh. I woke up and was like, "Well, let's try it again." You yeah. know, so round two. Round two, man. Is that that was like an experimental? So yeah, you know, just uh, yeah. And then so after that first time of taking Roxy's, man, it turned into um, buying as many Roxy's as I could get my hands on and snorting them. And then from there, um, it turned into Opana, and then a lot of Opana and like Valium and Xanax, man. I remember I was at my. Uh, one of my drug dealer's house one time and he had just robbed a pharmacy and um, he throws this big like a uh, protein bottle at me right he mm-hmm. throws it at me and I open it up and it's filled to the top with Valiums dude and he's like 350 bucks man you can have it um, and now <laughs> I was like alright dude <laughs> yeah here's a couple thousand dollars <laughs> yeah. worth of Valium just <laughs> my buddy's knocked over a pharmacy man here you go you know and I was like for sure, dude. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. And he even let me sell a little bit to pay him off, man. So I was like, that's even better, you know? Wow, it's like um, a dream come true. Man. Yeah. But but the thing is, man, he also, in there was uh, like 252 milligram Ativans that I thought were one milligram Ativans. And me and my buddies popped a bunch of them. And uh, we didn't think there were two milligram Ativans. And we blacked out. I blacked out for like two weeks, man. And I woke up like two weeks later. Um, and you can, I mean, I, I talked to my parents about it, like, no, you were walking around, everything was fine, you know, and I just literally lost like two weeks of my life and I woke up, man, and the bottle was about a quarter way full and that was, that was it, you know. Did you make any money? I, I don't know. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I know I didn't know the drug dealer anymore, so I had to make something. Oh, wow, there you go. You know? There you but, go. Uh, okay. So then, you know, obviously that's kind of like a good, uh little like snapshot of like the fun i guess i mean i would say it's a little snapshot of the fun but an even bigger snapshot of the progression right like i took it started with um a little bit of roxy and a little bit of norco next thing you know i'm have thousands of valium in my possession and black out for two weeks right and this is i'm 16 years old at this point you know Mm -hmm. doing this and then so after that, I, I stuck around that drug dealer, obviously, because he was willing to give me so many drugs. For know, basically nothing. For yeah. basically nothing. Um, and then it turned into Opana, man. So I was crushing up and snorting Opana. Um, and then that quickly turned into, I saw him um, smoking some heroin off a piece of foil, and I didn't know what it was, so I asked him what it was. He's like, oh, is this heroin, man? He's like, hey, do you mind if I try some of that? He's like, yeah, just uh, don't ever shoot it. And I was like, okay. So I <laughs> well, that's the last thing you should tell like a, a blooming addict is like, yeah, here's here's some heroin, but just don't shoot it. Go ahead and try it, but don't put it in a spoon ever. Yeah, you know? it's like, yeah. oh because yeah, for sure. But dude. like when someone tells us not to do something, it makes us like, especially as addicts, it makes us want to do it that much more. Absolutely, absolutely. So obviously, I smoked it, 
you know, and um, I thought I had found what I was looking for when I tried Norco, right? And I thought I had found what I was looking for when I did Valium. I thought I had found, and I did a lot of cocaine too. So I thought, <laughs> so I thought I had found what I was looking for uh, in cocaine, and I thought I had found what I was looking for in Opana, man. But that first time I ever took a hit of that heroin, man, it was on and cracking for you know yeah. some time, right? And then every single day after that, my main focus was uh, getting up, getting money to get heroin. And that's, that's how my life went, man. Every single day I woke up um, with the sole purpose of getting high. Yeah. You know? Well, just, it, 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 it engulfed you to a point where you can't really, like, you can't, re you can't reason with heroin addiction. No. At some point you, you're just going to get to a point where it's like, well, yep. this is, the bag's going to tell you, yep. like, look, like, you're going to do whatever it takes um, to, to get more. Whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. So what did those like low points look like for you? Like, so, cause you know, we have like, it seems like, I mean, obviously shit's unmanageable, but it yeah. doesn't seem like, you know, up this until is, this point shit's yeah. too, like too bad. Like, yeah, you're, you're, you're hooked on dope, but like, you know, it seems like you were still able to kind of maintain yeah. for the time being. What, what were some things that made it be like, okay, no, this can't, this, yeah. this can't continue. So I, I, I smoked heroin for a short period of time before I started shooting it, man. Um, and yeah, my life was unmanageable, but like you said, it was still kind of in the fun phase. You know, mm -hmm. I was still, it was still a little bit enjoyable. So, um, I had no problem continuing to do it. And then I was downtown one night, uh, downtown Fresno, um, trying to cop some dope, man. And it took me hours, right? It's like one in the morning at this point, And I finally got a bag and I walked into this halfway house right there on, uh, downtown in Fresno right across the street from that rallies that's um, on Fresno Street mm -hmm. downtown and uh, I walked in there man and the guy had a bag and I, and I bought some from him and he was like do you have a rig and I was like no and uh, he's like well I got some if you want and I was like sure man but I've never done it before he's like I got you and he pulled out a clean rig fucking cooked the heroin up and drew it back and I stuck my arm out and he stuck the needle in my arm that was the first time I ever shot dope Mm. Um, and that was, you know, logically in my head, I was like, you have just, uh, crossed a boundary with yourself, right? You have just done something that you said you would never do, you know, because I remember, um, a lot of my friend's brothers were hooked on heroin and things like that. And they'd always tell me, don't ever, um, don't ever shoot it. Right. right. And that's something I always told myself I would never do. But I think with heroin addiction, um, that's kind of the natural progression, you know? Yeah. You know, there's, there's, uh, some people that just prefer smoking mm -hmm. but i think that um with the with the disease process and the progression and more specifically with the progression of opiates mm -hmm. um it's always chasing a better high yeah and um you know there's always there's always a stronger more potent more effective high when it comes to opiates if you're starting out at like norco vicodin mm -hmm. and you're progressing up through the you know the Roxy's and the Opanas yep. and, you know, morphine and all that shit. But, you know, you get to a point when you're fully engulfed in heroin addiction where there's really kind of the, like, you know, there's only one other step up. Yeah. And, 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 and that, but that's just like the nature of the disease too, is that like with, with opiate addiction, it is truly always chasing that next high, yeah. that, that next better high. Like when it comes to, you know, uh, a drinking, I, I noticed like in my drinking days, it was a lot more just like I wanted to just be as obliterated as possible. Yeah. But with uh, opiates, it was more of like, you know, as opposed to just a constant, just drunken state all the time. With opiates, you are actively chasing a greater high. Absolutely. And that's that's the that's the this the the tragedy of the disease is like yeah. by chasing that high, by you know, wanting to get that much higher it becomes incredibly lethal. Yeah, and and you should add, man, that like that high is a high that you're never gonna get. And you're, you, there's a good chance that you're gonna die trying to get that high. Yeah. Right? Um, so after the first time I shot heroin uh, in, that, in that halfway house, um, regardless of how I felt that night, right? Like the shame, the guilt, the remorse I felt for doing that. Oh, so, you, so you did feel a lot of shame. Absolutely, yeah, okay. because it was something I would, I would never, it was never gonna do, man. But I had, I had done that, and there was kind of, at that point, man, for me, there's no coming back. Like, well, I did it, you know, I'm gonna run it to, to the ground now. Yeah. Um, so, 
I did that, man, and then every single day after that, uh, by the time I, and at this point I was 18 years old, so at 18 years old, I was a full-blown IV heroin addict, um, mm-hmm. and every single day was chasing that high like we were talking about, you know, um, and I would do anything and everything to get, like, if my grandma was standing in front of me at that point and said, you're going to have to run through me to get that heroin, I absolutely would have ran through her you yeah. know, to get that heroin, and that's just the... Um, you know, the things I was willing to do to keep my disease um, kind of medicated. Medicated. That's yeah. how I look at it, like heroin yeah. addiction is once you, you know, once you reach like that pinnacle of like shooting up, yeah. you just, you have to like medicate that sickness. Right. And if you're lucky, then you'll get high. Yeah, absolutely. Like if it's a good day and you come up, you then, yeah, you're going to get high, but that heroin is going to tell you just like, no, like you're yeah. going to have to medicate this. Otherwise I'm going to make you sick as a dog. Yeah. And that, that's, so I was already sick, right, every day before shooting heroin. Mm-hmm. And now that I'd really started shooting heroin, I woke up even sicker, you know. So I was really going um, to do absolutely anything it took to, to continue to get that high, man, whether it be steal from mom, steal from dad, steal from grandma, um, rob people, uh, do whatever it took, man, to continue mm-hmm. getting that high, you know. So um, my mom found out that I was doing heroin. She didn't know I was shooting heroin, but my mom found out that I was doing heroin. And uh, how'd she How'd she find out? She just kind of know. She knew something was wrong with me, man. And because um, you're just asleep all the time, I'm just and... asleep. I look like shit, you know. Um, yeah. And she knew something was going on for a while. Like she, she knew I smoked weed. She knew I drank. She knew I did all that stuff. Um, but she knew something was wrong with me, and she asked me what's going on. I said, "Mom, I'm addicted to opiates." I didn't say heroin, but I said, "Mom, I'm addicted." Yeah, it's a, to it's a softer blow. Yeah, it's a if softer you just blow. say opiates for some reason. So the big for H, some H, reason, dude. man, when you say I'm addicted to heroin, people just tend to freak out. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but. <laughs> God, those motherfuckers. Um, I know. But uh, so she said, all right, well, how about you go to treatment? So I went to um, an outpatient treatment here in Fresno, and um, that kind of started the – it kind of planted a seed for me, right, that mm-hmm. that kind of started the road. Did, did of, you ever stop? No. No, yeah. I never stopped. So I stopped doing heroin for about a month. They put me on Suboxone. I stopped doing heroin for about a month. But every day in the program, I smoked weed, and on the weekends, I took Xanax and drank, you know, um, and – while I was in that program one weekend, I thought it'd be a really good idea to um, go out with my buddies and take Xanax and drink. Uh, so one weekend I got a DUI, uh, and then the next weekend I thought it'd be a good idea but have somebody else drive because I had the DUI, and that weekend I decided to steal a bunch of clothes from Macy's, and I got, <laughs> caught. <laughs> I got caught for that and ended up with a DUI and uh, a bunch of theft charges, man. And I'm sitting in... So I, I walk out of Macy's with, I'm blacked out, and I walk out of Macy's with this huge pile of clothes in my hand. They show me the uh, the security footage. Can just, we get a copy of that? I wish, man. If I could, I would. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need a copy just, of that for the show. Just walking out with this huge pile of fucking um, polos in my hands, and four security guards were sitting outside, and the second they surrounded me, I woke up out of the blackout and they took me into the office and the lady was like, all right, if you, if you call your friends back in that, that did this with you, um, we won't call the cops. And I was like, okay, cool. So I called my friend. One of my friends was dumb enough to actually come back with all the <laughs> shit, with all the shit he took. And he sat down they cuffed both of us and called the cops right away. Um, wow. Yeah. So the cops showed up and I had, I don't know, I had a pill bottle full of Xanax and a little bit of heroin in my pocket. And, um, no, it wasn't here. It was uh, Norco's. That's one. I, I stopped doing the heroin, but I continued to do Norco and Xanax. What about the Suboxone? Uh, uh, I found a way around it. That's the thing, too, man, is Suboxone works only if... So you can take Suboxone and then take the opiates right after and then just wait 12 hours before you take another dose of Suboxone and it, you won't get sick. That's what I found, at least. So all these doctors saying Suboxone works, Suboxone works, take Suboxone. I mean, what I found is if I take the Suboxone first and then take enough opiates, I'll still get a high from it. Hmm. You know, and I just wait 12 hours before I take my another dose and everything will be fine. So. Well, yeah. For me, I could, I can never take Suboxone, dude. I, I don't know if my body just held on to the dope for as long as possible, but I'd wait whole 24 hours, sometimes even 48. Yep. I'd take a sub and I'd just be start puking. Yeah. I'd take another sub and just puke even more. I'm like, why am I doing this? And I'm like, but the third one will change <laughs> yeah. it. And I take another one and I'm still puking. Yeah, and I'm like, this yeah. is whack. And that's that sick, addictive thinking, right? Yeah. That we think, well, maybe if I keep trying it, something will work out for me. And it usually never does. No, but it, no, no, not usually. It. Never. Yeah, let's just go ahead and I think say it never. never. I think sometimes like your disease will like trick you. Yeah. Like you have like one chill night and it's like, oh, 
sick. Yeah. And then you're th- then and then like the next like months after mm-hmm. that with all the consequences, you're like, but remember that one night? Yeah, and then everything was okay. Yeah, you that know? it was like chill. Yeah, remember like, that one night? Didn't get arrested. Like, yeah. yeah. Remember that one night in high school when I took Norcos for the first time and puked the entire party and had a great time? Maybe I can recapture that. Yeah. You know, that's and that's sick, man. But that's th- that's like. It's almost like a, um, it's almost a beautiful thing, like it, because if you think about it, because it's like it's so insane mm-hmm. that like, it, it's almost like unheard of. Well, it is yeah, unheard of with normal people it because normal. it's just like how it's how crazy like the human mind can really be. Yeah, how it is. how um, you know, and and how the like when normal people hear that that story, um, they're like how is this even possible right it's and like I, it's like you know it's like seeing a unicorn almost <laughs> but like instead of a unicorn with a horn on its head yeah. it, you know it's just some dude shooting dope because it's yeah. like so like rare to like normal people to see that type yeah. of shit but it's, it's like so foreign it's so common has yeah no but, idea but what it's really goes on but the, and then and then the other thing too is it's so it's so common and it's really sad that like the level of of um the level of uh, ignorance that mm-hmm. most people have to it, it's, mm-hmm. it, but yet it's so common is is kind of tragic, you know. And I mean, I know I'm people have heard it over and over again, I'm sure. But disease uh, addiction is a disease just like cancer that requires treatment to recover from, yeah. just like cancer requires treatment to recover. But from. cancer's not going to tell you that, like, oh, do you remember? You know, do you remember that time back in like 2010 when like you didn't have cancer? You don't need your. You didn't need your yeah. chemo then. Why do you right. need it now? It's the only disease that tells you you don't have it, and you'll be fine if you keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. You know. Um, so I'm sitting in the Macy's holding area with with all these drugs in my pocket, man. And the cops are there, so I started talking tons of shit to the cops, man. I don't know what I thought. I thought maybe distract them or whatever, and it, it ended up working because the cop was um, flirting with with the Macy's attendant. Sick. So I reached in my pocket. I'm cuffed at this point. I reached in my my right pocket, man, with my right hand, go around my back, put the drugs in my left hand and drop them in the Macy's bag. And I didn't get caught for the drugs. But what happened was I kept talking shit. Whoever got him, whoever found that Macy's so bag lucky. got a come up, so dude. Lucky. Norcos and Xanax. I still think about that Macy's bag today, man. Yeah. Like, I wonder if all that shit's still there, you know? It's not. It's not. But, you know, <laughs> it's just, that's my disease, right? Yeah. Um, but... So I kept talking shit to the cop. He picks me up on the ground and slams me. And while he was slamming me on the ground, he scratched himself. When he scratched himself, he said, well, now I'm charging you with assault on a police officer. So I ended up going to county that night. Um, and keep in mind, right, that, that I'm taking Xanax every day. I'm, so I'm in county jail. Um, and I'm, I'm kicking Xanax hard, man. I had like two or three seizures while I was in there. They put me in a private cell because I'm also a type 1 diabetic. So they put me in the med pod, which is basically solitary confinement. So I'm sitting in my cell just dying, you know. And literally. Literally dying, yeah. yeah. And kicking the door to make sure the guards are still walking by to check on me, man. Because I really thought I was going to die. And, and I could have pretty easily. So I got out of, like, a week or two later, right, I get out of county, um, with with these new charges and I, I fought the court case for a little bit and whatever happened happened I don't really remember much of it but um so fast forward a little bit I I, I got out of that treatment program and I remember um the guy that that did the fleep uh, the treatment program the counselor there was Felipe and uh Felipe at the end of the program he had to know I wasn't sober man because he handed me a 24-hour chip um, when I graduated the program, he let me stay in the program, but he handed me a 24 hour chip. Was it an outpatient or an inpatient? It was an outpatient. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he handed me a 24 hour chip, man. And that was the last I, um, that was the last time I had gone to treatment. So I, I kept doing drugs. Obviously I didn't. It wasn't the last sober. time you went no, to treatment. No, it was the first time I went to treatment, but the last time I went to that specific program. Okay. Right? That's where I, I, I met Felipe for the first time. Um, Anyway, so after that, I, I, I kept doing drugs. I started shooting heroin even more heavily. And um, my mom got involved again and said, why don't you go back to treatment? But this time we go to, to residential treatment. And I said, okay. So they sent me to um, MPI in Oakland. And then from after detox at MPI, I went to uh, Diablo Valley Ranch in Concord. And I, at this point, I'm like 19. And um, the entire time I was in... Uh, Diablo Valley Ranch, my my focus was getting clean enough to be able to feel that high again when I got out, right? So getting my tolerance down so I could still get high or as high 
um, when I got out. Cause I remember that must've been torturous dude. Like oh, having yeah. to like sit there in like a treatment facility and all you want to do is just get high. Yeah. It's a constant obsession of I'm going to get high when I leave. I'm going to get high when I leave. I'm going to get high when I leave. And that was it, man. Did you bullshit yeah. the groups in the process? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, I tried to leave a lot while I was there and they always blocked me, but, um, um, yeah, I, I, I bullshitted my way through that one and I stayed 30 days. So I got out with 30 days clean, man, but with the thought that the second I get home, I'm going to get high. And I remember my dad picked me up and drove me back to Fresno. The first thing I did when I got home, was called a drug dealer, man. And that set me off for about another year of using heroin, uh, every day again. After that year, my, I went back to treatment again. Um, this time I went to Sacramento and I went back to treatment again, and I stayed 30 days again that time, and the same obsession was there, man. When I leave this program, I'm going to get high. So that's what I did. My dad picked me up again and, and drove me home. I got high. They found out right away. I got high for about a week, and they sent me back to that same program um, in Sacramento. And after this time, um, I moved in. I stayed 60 days in the residential part, and I moved into the sober living afterwards. But the entire time I was in the program, there was this guy there that uh, was, was prescribed Ativan for, he had a broken arm, so he was prescribed Ativan and, um, uh, what was it, like Norco. He got so, the Ativan for the broken arm? Mm -hmm, yeah, the Ativan and the Norco for the broken arm. Really? Yep, yep. So that, the entire Give you an anxiety medication for a broken arm? That helps with, like, nerves and nerve pain relaxes the muscles just gets you fucked up yeah that well that was my purpose man because the whole time he was there and he had it he would pocket his meds and sell them to me so what i was doing is saving up all this ativan and norco for when i got out and the night i got into the sober living my plan was um it was fourth of july weekend um i was gonna go to pismo spend the week with my family just do a little bit of the ativan and the norco and then be back at the sober living on monday and everything would be fine Right. It didn't work out that way. <laughs> I, can, I, uh, I can imagine. Before I got on, the night before I left, I took some Ativan. I stole $200 from my roommate at the Sober Living. I'm walking to the bus because I took the train. Um, I was going to take the train to Pismo, but it stopped in Fresno, so I was going to take a bus from, from uh, Fresno to Pismo. And so I'm walking to the train station, and I'd already taken some Ativan, and I bought a bottle. And I'm drinking the bottle. I pop some more out of in. I get, I get into the train station and I'm, I'm kind of browning out at this point. Right. And mm -hmm. the last thing I remember is I went in the bathroom, I snorted a bunch of out of in, I, I chugged a bunch of the liquor and on my way out, the uh, security guard stopped me and said, Hey man, we know that you have, um, you have alcohol in that bottle. You're going to have to toss that. And I tossed the bottle and I blacked out. <laughs> That's the last Hop, thing I remember. Hop on, you make it I to hopped the train? on the train, man. Um, I hopped on the train on a Friday and I woke up in Fresno in a hospital on a Tuesday. Do you know what happened? Uh, kind of. My mom has told the story to me. Um, so it's always nice the, yeah, from a mom's point of view. It's, it's super, um, encouraging. <laughs> um, so I remember like when I got to Fresno, I remember my dad picked me up still kind of browning out. So my dad picked me up from the train station, drove me to my mom's house. Uh, I remember giving the drug dealer a bunch of money and him giving me three grams of heroin. And then that that night and the next morning, I overdosed on heroin. Uh, my mom walked into my room and I'm laying on the floor blue, not breathing. She had to call the ambulance. She gave me CPR for like however long it took the ambulance to get there. They took me to Kaiser. I woke up in the hospital um, and I reached in my pocket and I felt the pill bottle of heroin. And I said, I'm fine. You guys can let me go. Um, that day, I overdosed again. Um, I did the heroin again. Was this some dirty dope with some fentanyl? Was this back to back? Or were you probably just... it was the same dope, man. Because oh, I bought yeah. three grams on a Friday, so and that lasted in my tolerance is way down because I hadn't done drugs in sixty days at this point. You know? Right. Um, so I, they sent me back to the hospital because I overdosed again, um, and the same thing, man. Uh, I woke up out of it. The the nurses are like, "Are you trying to kill yourself? What's going on?" I'm like, "No, I'm just." I'm a drug addict, you know, I'm not trying to kill myself or anything, but I think subconsciously maybe I was, maybe it was like a cry for help. I don't want to do this anymore, you know, but, um, anyway, I overdosed again and the same thing. I reached my hand in my pocket. The heroin is still in my pocket. I was like, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. You guys can let me go. Um, and then it happened again. And, Did you overdose again and, and for the third time for the third time? And they, um, they kept me in the hospital. That's when I woke up on a Tuesday. So I'm like browning in and out, you know, mm -hmm. and some of it's foggy. Like these probably aren't 
super accurate renditions of what actually happened, but, um, you know, essentially I overdosed three times in a weekend. I overdosed three times in a weekend and woke up in the hospital on Tuesday um, with the plan that if I just do a little bit of drugs during the weekend, I'll be back in the sober living on Monday and everything will be fine. Like I said, that didn't work out. Was that? Did anyone tell you that, or was it kind of just like your? No, um, that was just my own thinking. Oh, okay, thought, okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, so after that, after I woke up in the hospital, I still had the heroin, and I told my mom I'm not going back to treatment, and that sent me out for another year of, of doing heroin, man. Mm. After that year, uh, my mom had had it once again and said, you're going back to treatment. I said, all right, but I'm only going to go back to Sacramento Recovery House. I went and saw the doctor at Kaiser, and this was the first time he, um, no, this was the second time. Second time he put me on Suboxone and said, I'm going to keep you on Suboxone for about a year, man, until things get better. I said, okay. So I took the Suboxone. I was on Suboxone maintenance. I went back to Sacramento Recovery House. This time I stayed there for um, four months. And then afterwards, I moved into a sober living for three months. I got a job with the union, and I moved out in my own apartment. I got a girlfriend. We're living together. Um, everything seems to be good on paper, right? But I'm taking Suboxone. I'm selling the Suboxone I don't use on the side. At this time, I had like five sponsees. I was sponsoring people. Um, I worked for the sponsor. I went to meetings daily, but I wasn't living the most honest life, right? And right. It really started to play right. a toll on me. Um, so I went to uh, Kaiser. If you're on Suboxone, Kaiser makes you go to what they call BUP groups or people on Suboxone. Buprenorphine yeah, groups. Yeah, buprenorphine groups. So. Well, so I have a question too yeah. about that. Um, when uh, you when you're on Suboxone, because mm -hmm. this is kind of like a a back and forth discussion in the recovery community. Mm -hmm. But when you're on Suboxone, do you consider yourself sober? Um, at the time, I did. Looking back on it now, absolutely not. Okay. I still woke up every morning with the sniffles, um, sneezes, watery eyes, um, body aches, and things like that. So I was hooked on the Suboxone just like I was hooked on the heroin. Only the only difference was my life was a little bit more manageable. Right. Right. When you're, you know, Suboxone is going to get you like loaded per se right. if you're on maintenance. Right. right. But you know, um, I just uh, any guest that's on here that that talks about Suboxone, I try to I try to get their input on it or right. their there's. Uh, view on it because it's like there's so many different like schools mm -hmm. of thought um but at that time what did you would you, you wouldn't have considered yourself sober. well at the time i considered myself sober but looking back on it now i don't think i was so kind of like elaborate a little bit like why why don't you believe that it was you know it was it was sober well, like it, it was it the the lying the manipulation the selling the medications like i think it was all of it combined man and waking up every morning having to take the suboxone just like i had to wake up every morning having to take heroin gotcha okay gotcha yeah, yeah no that's a, that's that's a good point yeah. you know because i know for for myself mm -hmm. just just you know speaking about myself every time i've been on suboxone um oh i i just would only obsess about yeah the suboxone like yeah. it was just as much of a sub mm -hmm. uh, uh obsession that it was for for dope right and this is how and this is just my experience right if suboxone works for people take it man whatever's going to work for you and actually keep you clean and, and you have a, a normal good life do what's going to work for you right but my experience was suboxone didn't work for me mm -hmm. um so and the way suboxone works is it, it blocks the opiate man it gets you a certain level of high but it won't it has a ceiling effect so it won't you won't get any more high from it right right so it's supposed to knock out cravings and things like that. It didn't work like that for me, man. I would get that certain level of high and be like, I want more. I want more. So that was kind of my, for that nine months of sobriety, that was my constant thought. Like, I want more. I want more. And rather than obsessing about heroin, I was obsessing about Xanax, alcohol, um, whatever it was, you mm -hmm. know, to get me that more. So obviously there comes a fatal time mm -hmm. in your in your recovery out there in Sacramento mm -hmm. when you're on subs where you... Um, Relapse. Yeah. So I was well, living. What, what did that, what did, you know, was it like a instant thing? Or? No, it wasn't an instant thing, man. This one started a little bit slower. So I was living in the sober living. The sober living had a cap of three months um, that you could live there. So the three months um, hit and I had to find an apartment super quick. And, and my girlfriend wanted to move in with me. So we found an apartment. We moved in. Um, and then we were sitting there one night and she, she was a bartender, but she was sober too at this point. I think she had like two years and I was right around eight months, nine months. Um, and she's like, well, you think we could drink? And I was like, yeah, why not? Mm. You know, so I started drinking and just as I'm a, 
addictions, addictions, addiction, right? So just like I'm a heroin addict, I'm just as much of an alcoholic, you know? So, um, I start drinking pretty much on a daily basis. And then we, I drank for a month or two. Um, and then we both got the flu and we were laying in bed and we both looked at each other at the same time and said, let's go get some heroin. And we went to relieve the flu symptoms to relieve the flu symptoms because we were already drinking because it was an obsession in both of our heads probably like i was obsessing about it you know so when when we both kind of gave each other that excuse right there was no stopping it so we went and got heroin um and then it, it the nine months it took me to build everything that i had i lost in a month and i had to move out of the apartment move back with my mom's move back to my mom's house um i'm strung out again so me and my girlfriend moved back to my mom's house and that sent me off for another six months, you know, six months, seventh month, and I'm doing heroin every day again. Um, finally, my, my mom and dad both got together and said, hey, why don't you go back to treatment? And I kind of wanted to go back to treatment. I was going to AA um, three, four times a week, still loaded, but kind of like wanting to get back into it, right? Right. So, and that was the first time um, I, uh, well, so my parents said, we want you to go back to treatment. Um, we know of a program, my insurance didn't cover it. The program offered to scholarship me, scholarship me for 90 days in residential treatment, however long I need an outpatient treatment and to live in a sober living all for free. So I said, okay, let's do it. Um, and at, in, in the time I, when I moved back from, uh, Sacramento to Fresno, uh, the doctor at Kaiser said, you're either going on Suboxone for the rest of your life or I'm putting you on methadone. And I said, well, I'm not going on Suboxone for the rest of my life. So they put me on methadone. Um, so, and the methadone did not work for me, man. I, I ended up having a methadone habit every day and on top of a heroin addiction. Well, because, right? you know, the, the methadone doesn't have the blocker. No. Like the no, suboxone. So, um, did you notice that, like, plateau, uh, or that, what is it, the, um, like, the the double tolerance where like you know when you start using dope on top of methadone you have that methadone tolerance to where if you don't have the methadone you're going to get sick but mm -hmm. then you also have to supplement the amount of heroin that you're using each day because you can still take the methadone and be yep dope sick yep well how was that it not fun well you know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> not fun man i mean so i'm going to the methadone clinic every day and um and the heroin's not really working anymore either um, even without the methadone, the heroin didn't really, you get to a point, right, where you're just getting well, you're not getting high, you know, so I'm just getting well from the methadone, I'm just getting well from the heroin, I'm not really getting high anymore, but I'm still, like, knotted out all the time, so I'm not having any more fun at this point, right, the fun ceased to exist now, you know, so it's all problems, it's all bullshit, um, so, yeah, I mean, 40 milligrams of methadone a day and a gram a day of heroin is... You know, that's gnarly that's habit. Yeah. Gnarly habit. And so when um when did you when did you get clean again after that? Like so, what what did it take to cause that's that I can't imagine yeah. that kick, dude. So I went I went to um the program that they decided to scholarship me in. I went to first steps recovery. Um and at that time my girlfriend was still living at my mom's house and, and then she decided to go to treatment so she went to the camp recovery i stayed at first steps i lasted 10 days at first steps because the detox off methadone is super brutal and at that time um nobody in the central valley really knew how to detox off of methadone right so they gave me an advan and clonidine taper knocked me out for three days and then when i woke up man i just had all this angst and just i remember laying on the bathroom tile floor in my boxers just like uh you know i couldn't it was mm -hmm. terrible you know so i i uh, told him hey i feel like i'm gonna have a seizure have my dad come pick me up my dad comes and picks me up um to drive me to kaiser the second i got to kaiser i hopped out of the car and i walked back to uh, my mom's house and i called the dope man you know and that so my girlfriend found out about that she went to the camp in santa cruz um she found out about that broke up with me she stayed in Santa Cruz she stayed clean um, I didn't um, like I said I lasted 10 days at first steps I left and that took me out for another nine months man I, I stopped taking the methadone um, and that's what I felt I had to do to get off the methadone it's crazy to think about now but what I thought I had to do to get off the methadone was like I'm gonna go shoot heroin until I can get through this detox and then I'll come back and everything will be fine you know then I just have to detox off the heroin it's not the methadone too um, didn't work out like that right you know <laughs> so um, and my girlfriend left too, so I didn't have to share my dope anymore. 
right? Just which can you know? Yeah, has its has its pros. It has its pros, man. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have to share my dope anymore. So that set me out for another nine months. Um, and in that time, man, my heroin habit had gotten up to three grams a day, and um, I was. You know, I had shot every vein out in my body from my neck down. You know, there wasn't a vein left in my body. I weighed 130 pounds. Um, my skin tone was gray, you know, and I remember, um, and I'd start smoking the heroin, man, because I couldn't find a vein. I couldn't, you know, and I, and it, believe me, I tried, right? yeah. but I just couldn't do it, man. Um, it took me an hour, two hours to find a vein, and I couldn't wait that long to get well, so I started smoking it, and uh, my addiction got up to three grams of heroin a day. Um, so I'm doing that and I remember one day looking at myself in the mirror I had my shirt off and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and it was like a moment, that moment of clarity right like what the fuck are you doing man you know what's going on like you look absolutely terrible my mom's crying every day thinking I'm gonna die and she wasn't wrong man I'm killing myself every single day mm-hmm. you know um, so my I, I walked out of my room one day and my mom said um, we set up appointment tomorrow me your dad and a gentleman named Todd Harris um, and you're gonna go to that appointment and you're not gonna continue to live here doing drugs so you can go to that appointment and then you can do whatever you want to do after after that I said all right I went back to my room I smoked some more heroin and I came back out and said mom um, I'll go to the appointment but I'm not ready to stop using drugs so you can do whatever you have to do went back to my room that was January 25th of 2018 uh, January 26th of 2018 I went to, to that little intervention with my mom my dad and Todd uh, I don't remember anything that was really said in that meeting but I remember looking up at one point and seeing my mom and my dad's face and just like the tears streaming down and how they looked and knowing what I'd put them through um, and then that was like another moment of clarity right um, and in, in that moment I, I decided to I said alright I'll go back to treatment you know January, so that was January 26th that same day, I went in uh, to Kaiser, and they set up uh, me to intake again at First Steps on um, January 27th. So January 26th, I bought my last gram of heroin. I did it all night before I went to First Steps at like 7.30 in the morning. On the 27th, I went to First Steps, um, and January 28th of 2018 is my clean date. Wow. Um, so what was there anything like, crazy that you that you went through on that clean day or was so, it kind of just like did it feel just like oh shit this is another detox yeah so um it, it felt like that man i figured that it wasn't gonna work i figured i've done this so many times before right what's the point um but i thought i'd just give it one more shot i had come to terms that i was probably gonna die a heroin addict and i was okay with that but i figured giving it one more shot wouldn't hurt you know right um so i am in detox um, feeling like absolute dog shit and about two weeks in I wasn't sleeping I wasn't eating um, you know I was going through withdrawals man and, and nothing was really helping and for about two years um, I had said a prayer every night that you know, just a little one man God I don't want to do this anymore please let this be the last time I don't want to wake up tomorrow and, and do this again and again and again um, and I was laying in my detox bed, um, and I said that prayer one more time, man. And I said, God, give me something different. I don't want to go back to what I have. Um, give me something to hold on to, anything to hold on to. And this voice popped in the back of my head, man, and said, don't worry about it anymore. You're done. Um, and since that day, uh, the obsession to use was lifted from me, man. Um, I didn't, wow. I didn't have the thoughts anymore. I didn't have the urge to go use it used to be I got the urge and then I was high like I right. was, no matter what I was getting high and I didn't I didn't feel that anymore man I was willing to go through whatever it took uh, to stay clean this time I was willing to feel the withdrawals I was willing to do all the groups I was willing to do whatever it took man you know um, so after that day um, things kind of changed for me something clicked and I was willing you know and that's really what it takes, right? Like right. Just the willingness, dude, to do absolutely anything and everything to not go backwards. Um, so I, I stayed at First Steps for 72 days um, after I uh, discharged from the program. So the way it was set up, right, if you have Kaiser, uh, you discharge from First Steps and you go back to Kaiser's program. 
I didn't want to do that. So I was, I begged and pleaded with Kaiser and, and worked out a deal with first steps that, um, if I volunteered there and paid a little bit of money, um, I could do their outpatient program. So that's what I did, man. I volunteered at first steps. Excuse me. I did the outpatient program and, um, and I also moved into their sober living when the sober living set is associated with first steps. And, um, after three or four months of doing that, uh, they asked me to manage the sober living about a month after managing the sober living. Um, Felipe was a program director at first steps. Um, he asked me to come, come work at first steps as a behavioral health technician. Um, and that's kind of where, where, this really took a hold of me, man, right? Like right. that recovery was possible. This whole thing is possible, man. I can do this, right? I'm yeah, you went, you went from thing. someone who like couldn't, couldn't make it in treatment to now working in treatment. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to say too, right? Like that's not my recovery. Um, working in treatment is not my recovery. It's just right. and an I added think it, bonus. Yeah. It's a lot of times too people get it twisted. Yeah. Thinking that, oh, by by working at a rehab, you're, yeah. that's, that's your program. That's yeah. your that's how you're going to stay sober. And, and to be honest, like it's a great accountability, but I don't think it's the, it's, no. it's, it, it may work for someone. Yeah. Um, but doesn't work for us. No, no, <laughs> man. If, if I didn't go to AA work with the sponsor, be of service, um, you know, I would be just as loaded as I was before I went into first steps. Right. Right. Um, so then what, what did the, what did the up and coming, like, progression of like your because you know how we talk about diseases a progressive illness mm -hmm. but like obviously you have to maintain progression in your recovery and what did that look yeah. like for you so in in the beginning i was going to a meeting um i was going to a meeting probably every day i was working with my sponsor um, on a weekly basis i was calling him all the time um and i was you know I, I stayed in the sober living i actually still live in the sober living things have changed a little bit though um after I worked at First Steps for a while, um, the gentleman that owned the Sober Livings prior to me decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Um, so I asked him if he'd be willing to finance me the company, and I actually bought the company. So I, I own and operate two homes that, well, I own the company, I lease the homes, but um, yeah, own and operate two homes that, that do sober living out of them. And um, anyway, um, but how my program looks, man, is I still go to meetings. I still meet with my sponsor. I'm still of service. And that's aside from my job or my company. You know, I, I, I still do that. In the beginning, it was a meeting a day. It was meeting with my sponsor, um, working my steps, journaling, praying all the time. You know, and I still do most of that today. I go to a little bit less meetings, um, but I still say my daily prayer, man. And I still meet with my sponsor and I still service. I, did you, um, when, when you talk about your prayer life, did you try to like reach back out to that voice that you heard that said, you don't worry about it. You're done. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that the same higher power that you have today or has it like evolved since then? At, that is the same higher power I have today. I, I believe in God, uh, the Christian God, right? I, I was raised in that. And for a long time, like in my addiction, um, I had turned my back on it and got really resentful at God. And then when that voice popped in my head, man, it was an answered prayer that I had been praying to for years and not seeing any result, you know, and what I liken it to is in that moment, um, he knew I was ready. My higher power knew I was ready and I was willing and I could change. Right. So that's why I believe um, that that obsession was lifted right then and there. And that higher power has stayed my higher power the entire time in, in my whole life, really. But I've gotten a lot closer to my higher power um, through sobriety, through my own recovery. You know, I have a relationship with my higher power today rather than um, just thinking about it and like, oh, yeah, he's there. Right. Like, yeah. I have an ongoing relationship today yeah. with my higher power. So what have been some like big things in your recovery this time around that have been so much different than the previous times? Like what, what has been like part of your life Bes uh, besides like the regular, like we were just, what you talked about, like the, the prayer, the meetings, yeah. the, the sponsor, mm -hmm. you know, what, has there been anything that's like really stood out to you? That's been, um, you've like 
learned like the any tools that you've like utilized or like things that you've learned to love this time sober um that's a good question so one thing that was different for me this time is like i really experienced fun you know i really experienced um having a good time sober and that was a big change for me um, i always thought that i needed something to be under the influence of something to have fun you know and that's something that really changed for me man i have real friends today um like you steve you know like i have friends today that care about me and are willing to help me out you know and, and i rely on them pretty heavily um and before man i had never really taken anything seriously this time i took things really seriously you know, I took my program seriously. I took um, treatment really seriously. I did everything and anything they told me to do. Um, you know, and that included, well, they didn't tell me to, but that included me at, at him asking me to come work there, right? Which has helped, you know. Definitely and, accountability. Yeah, yeah, definitely the accountability. Like, you have to show up somewhere every day, um, and, you know, you depend on your job, right, to, to live. Mm -hmm. Um and I never really had a life before, even in recovery. Like, I never really had something to look forward to. And that's the difference is today I have something to look forward to. Like, I have a future. Um, if I keep doing what I'm doing, uh, my life can go absolutely anywhere. Um, sky's the limit. Sky's the limit, man. That's like, right. That's I right. Know, I know exactly what I'll get if I go out and decide to use heroin tonight. I'll be stuck in a room shooting dope every day, dope sick. I have no idea. Even if you have a room. Even if I have a room. You might not have, you might not might have, not have a room, room this time. Regardless of where I am, I'll You'll be, be shooting stuck. Dope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the difference is I have no idea what will happen if I stay sober, man. But everything has worked out so far, right? My life is, you know, I was a, a diehard junkie before I got clean, man. Today I, I own a company. I work for a company that I love. Um, I get to do what I love every day. I, um, you know, I have things to look forward to today that I didn't have before, you know. Um and that was the real turning point, right? Yeah. It's like I said, man, like, I know exactly what I'll get if I shoot dope. I don't know what I'll get if I stay sober, man, but everything's been pretty good so far. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot, you know. Um, so, I got to ask, right? Yeah. The new Sicker Than Most merch is in, right? Hooked you up with a shirt. You did. Are you ever going to wear it to work? Uh, absolutely not, because <sighs> I wear... <laughs> I wear button up tucked in long sleeve shirts and slacks so, to work. So, okay, so the real question is now like are we gonna have to bring sicker than most dress ties to to the table? Is that Dude, if if you make like a nice collared long sleeve shirt that has a little sicker than most thing right there? How about a like a like a polo shirt or does it need to be buttoned down? Buttoned down, man. You gotta go classy. But like not even for casual Fridays? Not even for casual Fridays, man. Like you gotta go classy. If you do that, I'll see what I can do about wearing it to work. You'll see. Watch this flow. I'm going to custom order up like a hundred dollar shirt, sicker than most button up. And he's like, so I talked to management. It's a no go. <laughs> it's a no go. Yeah. Fuck. Uh, All right. Well, worth a shot. Worth a yeah. shot. I'll we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but I do love the shirt, man. Maybe I'll wear it under, under my work shirt. Oh, you will. No, you, you yeah. will. You will. I know you will. Yeah. I know you will. And they make great undershirts, but you they know. Do. But it's got to, I mean, it's got to get out there. Well, and the thing is, too, is that, like, you know, I'll, I'll plug the merch real quick, right? Yeah. The thing about Sicker Than Most merch is I've, uh, I guarantee 100% since, because I know the people that I've given them to so far, I know that no one has shot heroin while wearing a Sicker Than Most shirt. That's a plus, man. So sure. if that's my case, if I have a 100% success rate that no one shot dope using my Sicker Than Most or wearing my Sicker Than Most shirt, um, it's safe to say that like, uh, you know, not, not going to brag, but my shirt saves more addicts than Suboxone. Dude, it's got a hundred percent success rate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start going to all the treatment centers down South. Be like, look, I got the new cure to addiction, Do it, man. <laughs> but Do it. anyways, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we'll right. see how that goes. Maybe, maybe, you know, bring him to bring him to, um, do you know, do detox scrubs. Yeah, man. Sicker than most detox scrubs. <laughs> Just stay, this big yeah. broken bottle on the back. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, <laughs> stay stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah. But anyways, you know, with that being said, man, is there anything that you would like to say to um, someone who's new in sobriety yeah. or someone who's been around in sobriety for a while who may be struggling? Um, there's a couple things, man, one of which is like a lot of my early recovery was just holding on and waiting for the next thing, right? Like. 
regardless of how bad your day gets, what's going on, man, I guarantee you if you don't uh, do whatever your drug of choice is that day, it will get better, you know. So just hold on. Um, I promise you it will get better, you know. And, and that's uh, the Nasty Nate guarantee. Yeah. Well, it's not the Nasty Nate guarantee, man. That's, that's right, we'll, the, we'll let you have this one. All right. All right. Yeah. And, too, uh, man, like, addiction is becoming more common, right? And I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. I don't think that, um, you know, we need to hide it, man. If you're hiding it, you're not getting better. You know, uh, it's when you start talking about it and, and addressing the problem that you start to get better, right? Um, yeah. Because I could have hidden uh, forever, man, and died a heroin addict, right? Well, I don't think you could have hid your addiction forever. No, but I could have, I, I could have, you know, I could have stayed doing what I was doing and not told anybody right. else about it. The only people that knew really, man, were my parents. and Your drug dealer? You know, my drug dealer. He knew yeah, very well. He knew, he knew very well. I was, a, yeah. I was a good customer. Yeah. Oh, right? I, bet, I bet you were. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I really, I don't think that it's anything to be ashamed about. I think we need to talk about it more, and I think that, um, you know, we need to make treatment options more available for people. Yeah. yeah. No, that's it. That, yeah. that, that's it right there, man. So, you know, I'd like to end the episode with that, man. You know what I'm saying? I've, at the very thank you for being on the show. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. Dude, Nate, this has been a pleasure. Yeah. This is definitely a sick one. <laughs> Sicker than most. <laughs> you know, uh, I like to end every episode with this, right? You know, no matter where you come from, no matter where you've been, you are lovable and you are forgivable. So keep that in mind. Keep your head up and keep it moving. Peace. <laughs>